be about 219 million is what they think the revenue failure will be. That means for the uh, from now through the end of June 30th, which is the fiscal year 2020 budget. Um, that means that we're going to be about 219 million dollars short. But when you think about that, it, it's actually since it's on a quarterly basis, the impact is even larger. Hi, I'm Ben Felder with The Frontier, and this is COVID-19 in Oklahoma, a daily podcast from The Frontier, taking a closer look at the impact the coronavirus is having in our state. Today is Wednesday, April 1st. On today's episode, I speak with non-doc editor-in-chief Trey Savage about the impact the coronavirus is having on the state legislature, when they might return for the remainder of their session, and what tough decisions await due to the expected budget shortfalls. But first, here's the latest COVID-19 numbers from Oklahoma. On Tuesday, the State Department of Health reported the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases had reached 565, which is an increase of 84 from the day before. Hospitalizations reached 177, an increase of 24. And 23 Oklahomans have now died, an increase of 6 from the day before. You can find a detailed map of coronavirus cases from across the state at readfrontier.org. So in a normal year, a lot of Oklahoma's news focus would be on the state capitol and the legislature as it debates bills, decides on a budget, and kind of gears up for an election year. But the legislature adjourned on March 17th as the coronavirus was beginning to spread in Oklahoma but one person who's still keeping tabs on the state on state lawmakers is Trey Savage, who's the editor in chief of Nondoc, and Trey is kind of an, an unusual legislative session so far this year. Certainly is. Um, I had a bunch of half-written stories about uh, policy bills that I don't know are going to end up going anywhere uh, as we figure out what the legislature ultimately decides to do in the middle of this coronavirus outbreak. Yeah. First off, w- remind us when did the legislature pause? this session and the leaders offer any kind of idea on when they thought they might return. Yeah. So, uh, I think the order of events was essentially that a state Senate staff member, um, got sick or, or got sick to the point where, uh, they became tested on Friday, March 13th of all ominous dates. And, uh, when, the legislature came back uh, on Monday, March 16th. Uh, there was, you know, a plan being formulated about what the legislature needed to do uh, in case, uh, you know, things got so bad in the state of Oklahoma that they could not return after their normal light spring break week, which was going to be the, the March 16th week. And uh, they got word, I think it was Tuesday, March 17th, that the staffer had tested positive, and then that set off a bunch of whole other things. But in the meantime, um, on on Monday, March 16th, they decided to change some of the uh, rules regarding access to the Capitol. Uh, And so, and then uh, the House authorized proxy voting, uh, where each caucus could select a proxy member so that certain members could vote from home if need be, if the, the pandemic got out of out of hand, if you will. If you remember, you know, uh, I think it was Wednesday, March 11th, that the Thunder game was canceled and the NBA season was canceled. I think that's when it got, you know, real, real for a lot of people here in Oklahoma. 
So the legislature was trying to take some preemptive measures and, and you know, wasn't still sure, are we going to see this break out here in Oklahoma? What happens if the weather gets warm, et cetera, et cetera? Well, now, you know, uh, two and a half weeks later, essentially, uh, or two weeks later, uh, obviously we are, you know, still seeing uh, cases go up astronomically and we're in the thick of it. Well, the legislature adjourned March 17th, not only giving uh, in the House members more power to vote by proxy if they return uh, or when they return. And then also they changed the state's open meeting law uh, to allow for uh, digital teleconferencing and video conferencing for state agencies, uh, local governance boards, uh, school districts, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they took some precautions in that regard, but when they left on March 17th, and by the way, that day media were the only members of the public allowed in the building, so that was a little little spooky. I'm not really thrilled about uh, operation in that manner, uh, especially as it was that day dealing with the Open Meeting Act. But yeah. Um, when they left on the 17th, there was really not a clear picture of when they were going to return. And as you and I talked today, uh, Tuesday, March 31st, um, we're just now finding out uh, that, that it seems like they may come back in to session briefly uh, next week to deal with some budgetary emergencies. Uh, but what that looks like yet is still really unknown. Yeah. And you talk about those budget emergencies. Uh, so you reported on Tuesday that there, we're kind of looking at a $219 million revenue failure for this current fiscal year, which ends this summer, and then an estimated $450 million revenue shortfall for next year's state budget. You know, even before the pandemic was really spreading in the United States, we saw oil prices falling. That's obviously a big hit to the economy. But, you know, and then the, the double whammy being, you know, the shutdown of uh, pretty much a lot of goods and services. So how big of a challenge is this shortfall going to be uh, for the state and the immediate and then moving into next year, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I tried to answer it in that article you referenced. Folks can go to nondoc.com. That's N-O-N-D-O-C.com. And it's a photo of uh, House Budget Chairman uh, Kevin Wallace. I believe the, mm -hmm. uh, the headline, if I look at it, is something like uh, uh, savings and and stimulus could mitigate Oklahoma revenue failure and shortfall. And essentially, the the budget, the two budget chairmen who I spoke with, um, uh, Chairman Wallace in the House and then uh, Senator Thompson in the Senate, both are cautiously, or, or they are urging caution for people. Um, you know, Chairman Wallace said specifically, uh, you know, don't uh, don't panic. Um, that you know, this too will pass and. I think that legislative leaders, uh, at least on the Republican side, uh, certainly feel like they made the right decision last year. There was a lot of debate uh, over whether to increase appropriations by another $200 million or give uh, Governor Stitt the $200 million in additional savings in the oil and gas stabilization fund that he had requested. And the end of the day, he won out. Uh, and I think that everybody now feels like that was you know, definitely the right decision, uh, considering the the crisis uh, that is facing the budget now. In terms of actual numbers, yeah, you hit, you 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 kind of relayed what they relayed to me about 219 million is what they think the revenue failure will be. That means for the uh, from now through the end of June 30th, 
which is the fiscal year 2020 budget. Um, that means that we're going to be about $219 million short. But when you think about that, it, it's actually, since it's on a quarterly basis, the impact is even larger uh, because we're talking about the cuts that would have to come um, to individual budgets at the in the final quarter of their uh, fiscal year. Now, that uh, because there's a revenue failure, that triggers uh, an ability to use up to three-eighths of the total money in the Constitutional Reserve Fund, a.k.a. the Rainy Day Fund, which sits at about $806 million right now. Three-eighths of that, roughly, is $300 million. The legislature, uh, so the, the State Board of Equalization, which features the governor, the state treasurer, the lieutenant governor, the state agriculture secretary, for some reason, uh, the attorney general, the state superintendent for public instruction, and maybe the state auditor inspector, seven people. Uh, they will meet, I think, expected on April 7th, which is a Tuesday. I would think they're probably going to use Zoom or some other teleconferencing option, uh, but they will meet on that, certify the revenue failure, and then the legislature would uh, quickly appropriate the money as allowed by the uh, Constitution under the Rainy Day Fund to uh, fill that that expected revenue failure. So that's one issue. The second one is, as they build out the budget for fiscal year 2021, which starts July 1st, they are expecting about $450 million shortfall on uh, revenues anticipated for, for next year. Um, so that also would trigger another three-eighths of that $806 million mark. And it's not minus the first part they they appropriate. It's, it's, it's the $806 million mark, according to Senator Thompson. Okay. And um, that would be, you know, again, another $300 million essentially that they could use to help plug that $450 million or so uh, shortfall that's expected for the 2021 budget. As they told me in the story that I put out today, uh, they are, you know, shooting to avoid any cuts. Um, they're shooting to, uh, you know, avoid any any uh, lo the losing of any ground on the education investments that have been made in the last two years in the state. Um, and I think that between the Rainy Day Fund. Uh, the, the stabilization fund that I talked about for oil and gas is about $200 million. And then the federal money made available uh, through the stimulus bill, as well as there will actually be, I think, some sort of anticipated change in what's called the FMAP rate, which involves uh, the federal percentage of Medicaid funding. I think there's like a, a safety mechanism involved there. When, that, when the state economy goes down, the federal government agrees to pick up more of the tab on, on Medicaid uh, dollars. And I think they're expecting about essentially $90 million for the end of this fiscal year and $90 million for the first quarter of the next fiscal year that they can use uh, to help fill those those holes. You know, but the budget wasn't the only big thing on the agenda. You know, what other issues are going to be top of mind for the legislature? And then what big issues that you were expecting to cover this year do you feel like are just going to get punted? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and just to just to clarify, you know, we could still see uh, 
the legislature move forward with a, a change to the amount of money we can put into the rainy day fund, that's a constitutional situation. So when they saved that additional $200 million last year, that was actually in a different uh, fund because they weren't allowed uh, to, I guess, quote, quote, unquote, overfill the rainy day fund. So there has been a bill that, that I think had made at least halfway through the process uh, to put a, a vote of the people on can we save even more money, um, you know, the governor is fond of saying that in the private sector, uh, you want to have at least, what, two months of, of uh, you know, revenue in reserve. And uh, that's, that's been a goal of his. And I think they're trying to get to $2 billion in savings at some point. Now, um, maybe it's a whole other discussion for another day. In terms of what the legislature will look at, um, you know, I, I, I referenced you to a, a, an interview I did with uh, House Floor Leader uh, John Eccles back on the 17th of March, and he, you know, said a couple things. I jotted down a couple notes. He said, quote, we will be more careful on what we hear. Uh, he said, um, the, uh, we are, we're only coming back to deal with bills that are helpful to the problem or the budget. So among the bills that are helpful to the problem um, and, you know, what's helpful, that'll be an interesting uh, definition per se, but he listed off a few that I think are, are you know, relevant. Um, one is they have already been trying to reach an agreement on what's called surprise billing, uh, which essentially attempts to put some restraints on the uh, in-network, out-of-network uh, language and descriptors that are in health insurance plans, right? Um, so, you know, it's quite likely that if you or I, uh, you know, just went down the road and encountered um, a, a hospital, we might, we might know enough to check and see is that hospital in our uh, network, right? And so, okay, we're, we're sick. We've got this, uh, you know, condition. We've got COVID-19 or whatever it is. Well, phew, we made the right decision to go to the right hospital, right? Well, what if the provider who we end up seeing or any of the providers we end up seeing or any of the laboratory services that that hospital uses, what if those individuals or services are not technically in our network extension as well. All of a sudden, we're going to get what is called a surprise bill, where we have to cover a lot more of something for a test or for uh, a, a particular physician than we thought beforehand. So, you know, that's an example of a bill that I think becomes almost more important now. Uh, we're going to have a lot of that because, uh, you know, there there's stories going around of people struggling to get into the right hospital, and and so. You know, I mean, as an aside, I think uh, COVID-19 has really uh, brought to light a lot of the lingering systemic problems we have uh, with healthcare in this country. And, you know, everybody, a lot of people seem shocked that we're having all these issues. And I, I sort of find that amusing, right? Like these are, <laughs> these are systemic problems that we've had in the healthcare delivery system uh, for a long time. We don't even really have a system. We have a bunch of silos. Um, we're still faxing records across the state to each other in 2020. Like, think about that. So yeah. that's one thing that we're trying to deal with. Um, another one that may, you know, kind of get connected in there uh, is is a, a bill that OU Medicine is trying to get done. Uh, it does have a fiscal impact on it. Essentially, they're trying to, uh, I guess, restore a sales tax exemption or either get a, get a new sales tax exemption or, or restore one. I can't remember which. Uh, but they have made a commitment that the goal of that is to allow them to fund more residency slots. And if you've been pay 
paying attention to the the concerns we have about uh, physician manpower, uh, the shortages we have in doctors, especially in rural areas. Um, part of the issue is, again, a na- nationwide systemic issue where there is a capped number of residency slots. I have a friend who years ago fell into that category, was trying to change uh, for the final year of his residency and uh, wound up in a situation where there were no more uh, places to finish his residency. And so, you know, here he was a year away from finishing that and he couldn't get in anywhere to actually become the doctor. You know, he was a doctor, but he couldn't finish his residency to continue his career. You know, that's that's sort of how just uh, unbelievable some of the, the problems we face in healthcare are. So, OU Medicine has a proposal that if, if they get this sales tax exemption, they will use that money to um, fund more residency slots. And so that's got pretty good support, and I think people would like to get that done. And, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have a direct effect on COVID this year, but I think it speaks to um, trying to improve our healthcare system. Another one that's really big in the healthcare world, two more. Uh, there, there's an agreement between the CRNA group and the uh, uh, anesthesiologist with the OSMA, the State Medical Association. Um, you know, CRNAs are the certified uh, something nurse anesthetists. I feel <laughs> feel terrible. Uh, Jenny Schmidt will be annoyed that I, I don't know what R stands for off the top of my head. Respiratory, something like that. Uh, but basically, there's an agreement, right? And so when you have an agreement between groups that have been historically contentious, uh, you want to get that bill over the finish line because two months from now, something could fall apart, right? So yeah. I think they want to get that done. There's a bill regarding uh, DOs, which is another type of, of doctor, doctor of, uh, what is that, osteopathy, is that right? And so, uh, you know, not an MD, but a DO. Well, uh, Chad Caldwell, Representative Caldwell, has a bill uh, that involves, um, I was trying to look up the bill number, but essentially it has something to do with background checks that need to be done. Uh, for licensure. So that's an important measure, I think, to some people in the healthcare world. Uh, And then, of course, you know, there'll be some stuff that pops out that we don't know about. But one thing that I think people want to get done is the COLA bill, the cost of living adjustment for state pensioners. So that's retired teachers, retired state employees, retired law enforcement, retired firefighters, retired judges. Uh, You know, they haven't had a a cost of living adjustment, an increase in their monthly uh, pension payments in about, what, 12 years, 13 years, something like that. So there's an agreement on that. It's a staggered system. Uh, and I think they want to get that over the hump because, yes, there's going to be um, some short-term stimulus stuff, it looks like, from the federal government. But, um, you know, again, we're talking about uh, older folks, many of whom may encounter some, some hospital bills on uh, through all of this. So I think they want to get the COLA bill done as well. Yeah, and... Uh... You know, we don't know yet how much time they're going to have to get that done, but it's going to take a, a laser focus uh, for them when they do return. I, two more questions for you, Trey, and just some very informative stuff you're offering, so appreciate that. Um, you know, first, sure. another thing about this year that's pretty big is it's an election year, and we've you know we've got filing coming up pretty soon. We've we've already seen you know uh, the April I think seventh local elections in a lot of places have already been uh, bumped back. But uh, in November, you know, a presidential election, obviously, but a lot of, uh, you know, the House and Senate races and state questions. How is how is this uh, coronavirus pandemic going to impact elections, both on what we are and aren't going to see on the ballot and then just the general campaigning of candidates? 
You know, that's a, that's another really good question, um, and I don't know that I have a great answer for it. I, I was sort of trying to figure out what the uh, situation looks like for April 7th, uh, which is, you know, next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a, a statewide election date. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything on the state. There's no statewide ballot, uh, but that is a scheduled election date. So local municipalities, school boards, uh, tech boards. Um, you know, have uh, the op counties uh, have some things that were going to be uh, on the ballot April 7th. Well, the state election board has, uh, you know, given the authority for bodies to move these elections to, uh, I think, June or, yeah, I think the June 30th statewide primary. Um, I, I think many are doing that, but I don't know if all are doing that. I mean, if you're out in the panhandle now where, you know, I don't know that there's been a confirmed case yet. I haven't looked at the map today, but, um, you know, maybe you still want to pass your school bond, right? Uh, maybe you still need to pass your uh, eight cent sales tax to support the hospital. Now might be a good time to do that. So, you know, there'll still be some elections on, on April 7th, I think. I'm trying to find that out. As for, you know, filing date is is middle of April. I don't know what we're going to do there. Um, you know, the state, uh, one of the things, again, this is exposed is that, that we lack some uh, technological opportunities that you would you would think we might have, right? Weren't we supposed to have online voter registration by now? Wasn't yeah. that supposed to be a, yeah. a thing? And then, you know, we don't, um, and I'm working on a story about this, uh, we don't have a central repository for public meeting notices. Um, there is no uh, there, there is no single place you can go as a journalist or a citizen or even a, a state lawmaker and and have a comprehensive list of the public bodies that are meeting in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, so now we've allowed these public bodies to meet by video conference, uh, but we have no way of necessarily knowing, uh, you know, when they're, when they're meeting. Many many do file this with the Secretary of State, but they're not required to uh, unless they're a state agency. So, you know, we, we have some issues. So what are we going to do for candidate filing? Are we going to allow people to, to email those in? Um, you know, if, if I were a political consultant uh, who might be trying to see what, what a certain race looks like, uh, who's filing, who's not, uh, you know, that, that could be problematic because the, the day used to be that you know, uh, people would stand at journalists would come out there. We all got to meet candidates. It was a time to get people's information so you could, you know, find out who was running for offices. Well, are we going to do that now uh, by email? And then what's the release time in terms of getting that information out? What's the uh, challenge process? These are all questions that, you know, I, I have no doubt that State Election Secretary uh, Paul Zirex is, is working hard on. He, he does uh, great work. Um, there was a story uh, that came out in the national media uh, a couple weeks ago about how uh, electronic ballot feeder machines were jamming because of an increase in hand sanitizer. Apparently, hand sanitizer jams up a, a ballot reading machine. So, you know, it's a, I mean, it's everything from the big to the small that is really thrown into, flu- uh, into flux this way. And yeah, I don't know what a June 30th primary is going to look like, but I, I do know there are people out there uh, still, you know, who have already declared for their candidacies. And and uh, I think those be people who are challenged. And I think if you look at the social media pages of, of current members of just the legislature, let's say, um, 
you know, I think they are trying to do their best to be informative for their communities. Uh, they are certainly not taking time off, or at least the majority of them. Uh, they are certainly communicating regularly. I have to say the House, uh, I think uh, John Estes with the House is, is really working pretty hard to get um, a lot of information out to their members uh, to get it out to the public. Because if you're a, a, a lawmaker, you're looked to, uh, whether you have a healthcare background or not, as a source of reputable uh, information in your community. So I'm seeing a lot of that on social media. And and that probably helps people during their election season, you know. Um, but there could be somebody who gets, uh, you know, caught doing something stupid uh, and, and they face an election. I don't really know. I did want to mention one more thing before I let you go. Um, you were you, and you already kind of addressed this, you know, the, the change in the Open Meeting Act to facilitate virtual meetings. Uh, you know, you were kind of on top of this early and. And, and bring in some sunlight to some of the proposed changes to this. Uh, we, I know you've already mentioned this before, but kind of what are what is the law right now? What are what are uh, public bodies allowed and not allowed to do when it comes to meeting virtually? Yeah, that that that's great. Maybe you'll you'll prod me into finishing my article uh, so that people can uh, read read along. I, I I did publish about this when on March 17th. Again, that was right when the Senate was the legislature was adjourning. They passed what was Senate Bill 661, um, and that changed to uh, allow for more teleconference and video conference meetings. That was a weird day. Um, you know, a lot of people like to to um, you know say certain things about lobbyists and. You know, sometimes that's certainly warranted, uh, but it, it was it was really, truly bizarre to be in that building when the legislature was taking up a huge change to a fundamental core of uh, open democracy in this state. And I looked around and the only people there were it was me and about five other journalists. And I really I didn't really feel super comfortable about it, but I felt like. I had to uh, sort of engage more with lawmakers. The Senate passed their own version of this bill very quickly in a matter of two minutes. There was one small question, no debate of substance, and they sent it over to the House. We're all trying to read the bill, and it made some major changes. It was going to change this for a year. There were questions about what are the notification requirements, the posting notices, all this stuff. And, you know, I didn't really like to... I didn't like to be in that position because I, my normal goal is you two fight and I'll write about it. And if I have some analysis down the road, I'll write that and label it as commentary. Well, here I, I walked out of the Senate and I, I stopped I, either by text or in person. I asked, I think, about six senators, both parties, Democrats and Republicans. I said, can you tell me what this new bill that you just passed uh, does, what the requirements are for public meeting notices to be put up? And not one of the six could tell me what they had just passed. Hmm. And I, I, and, and I, and these are good people. They were all trying to get home. They, they knew that they, they knew there was potential of a COVID-19 outbreak in the Senate at that time. I didn't. Uh, so I, I get it. I, I get that, you know, there's a lot going on, but it was an awkward situation. And I kept thinking to myself, this would not have happened if there were lobbyists in this building. Right. And lobbyists is seen as a dirty word sometimes. But it's also people who represent interests of people in the public, you know, groups of people, uh, companies, industries. 
and, and you know, as the education establishment, uh, the healthcare establishment, like it, it was bizarre that that you know lobbyists are out of the building for the first time, the public's out of the building, and now we're going to make this change, and we're not going to have much discussion about it. So fortunately, the House stopped the process, had their own concerns. You know, it was pretty. Uh, they they were not too pleased about this. And they made some changes, including requiring that the meeting, the digital meetings be recorded in one way or another. Uh, they, they clarified uh, that. They required this to end on November 15th or the end of the statewide uh, emergency declaration, whichever comes first, which is a little different than one calendar year, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that worked out well. That was the beauty of the bicameral process, right, is that uh, the second uh, chamber um, you know, helped make that a little more perfect. It's an imperfect situation, uh, and I don't fault them for trying to do that. And actually, actually, I think, and you may agree, that I think that coming out of this, we have a great opportunity to actually really modernize how we have meetings, to allow people statewide yeah. to access these meetings more often. But I think there are components of how the public is notified about this, um, you know, not everybody has has uh, a website. I, I looked earlier for a county, an entire county in the state of Oklahoma, with all the authority of a county. I, they do not have a website. <laughs> now, they, the reason I was Googling them sort of is related to this issue. They don't have a website. They have a website that is hosted by Oklahoma State uh, University, but it's not officially hosted by them. So where do they post their meeting notices? How do people find out uh, that they're going to meet by digital video conference if they even can do that? So there's a bunch of questions that I think uh, I, I'm actually looking forward to, you know, opportunities to modernize the Open Meetings Act a little bit, uh, to require uh, public access online to these meetings, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if we get there, you know, if humanity doesn't end, uh, I think we will get there and have a really good chance for a robust discussion. And I believe that that the senators and, and representatives uh, and governor's office that I've talked to about this issue, I think they really do want to try to do it right because it is something where, hey, it's 2020. Let's let's improve this process a little bit. Uh, it's just unfortunate that this crisis uh, kind of kind of forced us to do that without you know, maybe the most robust discussion. Yeah, and a great point because we've already talked about how, how is this going to change maybe the way, you know, whether it's our healthcare system or just the way that we, you know, try to practice good health in, in social settings and public. You would expect that this pandemic is going to change some of those practices and norms. Yeah, maybe it's going to change for the better uh, the way that we conduct meetings and, uh, you know, give give more citizens access. Well, hey, Trace, great information. I've I just I knew it was, this was the right time to kind of uh, pause and take a look at what's happening in the legislature, what's not, and what we can expect to see uh, here in the weeks to come. So really, really appreciate uh, appreciate your insight. Ben, I thank you very much, man. You guys are doing a great job. Um, Kathy, Cliff, uh, Dylan, all killing it. Um, uh, probably poor choice of words there, but uh, you guys are doing terrific work. And uh, I hope soon – you and I can grab a couple baseballs, a couple things, a hand sanitizer, and go down to the park and and uh, throw the ball back and forth. I think that's still legal, I th- uh, I, as far as I can tell. I, I think so. You know, at the the park by my house, they took the, the tennis nets away. Um, there are people still playing tennis today, so it's a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, well, you know, nothing spreads viruses like tennis. Yeah, so, uh, you know. 
But yes, I would you think gotta, I would gotta, think a good yeah. game of catch would still be be warranted, and if nothing else, would be good for for mental health. So it's it's a deal. Ben, good luck. Uh, keep up the good work. The podcast. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Hey, sounds good. Thanks, man. That's going to do it for today's episode. For the Frontier, I'm Ben Felder. Stay safe and healthy. I'll be back with you on Thursday.